City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. This is a point in the show where Matt tries to say something funny. Watch. Hey, Allison. Yes? We're reviewing this Amazon TV show, Fleabag. I thought for sure it was about my dog. See? Pathetic. Now he's going to try and tell you we're doing a show all about movies that break the fourth wall. Bet you he flubs a word. He always screws up this part. Now, later in the show, we'll bring you... Uh, sorry, Q Shots, it. where we offer some streaming suggestions, all centered on a common theme and inspired by Fleabag. We're going to do movies that break the fourth wall. This should be fun. For one of us, anyway. Who are you talking to? No one. Please continue. Okay, well, first up, we do Opening Break, a segment in conjunction with Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films that are new on demand. Allison, it's your turn to give us some picks. What have you got for us? Well, this one I will say to all of you, not just the fourth wall breaking. (laughs) Uh, I've got three movies. They are all available on demand as we speak. And the first one is Microbe and Gasoline. This is the most recent film from Michelle Gondry, former hotshot of art house <laughs> cinema who's been keeping it kind of quiet lately in mean, yeah. France making French films. Uh, this is a French film. It is a coming of age film following the adventures of two teenagers or really they're barely teenagers. They are in middle school uh, who are nicknamed Microbe because one of them is so kind of pre-adolescent still and often gets mistaken for a girl and is small and gasoline because one of them is working class and works in the kind of junk shop slash antique shop uh, owned by his family and uh, always smells of gasoline. These two outcasts become friends and then they go on a road trip, an unsanctioned road trip in, because this is a Michelle Gondry movie, (laughs) a vehicle they build themselves that looks like a tiny house on wheels. Sure. It is adorable. As you do. This is, for Gondry, a fairly restrained film. It doesn't do anything totally wacky. I think certainly in contrast to his last film, uh, which felt like Pee-wee's Playhouse, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, set in uh, period France. This one is uh, really kind of like low-key a story about friendship and uh, about feeling awkward and out of place as a, a tween. But it does have some Gondrias touches. Uh, for instance, in addition to the tiny house on wheels, uh, one of the characters, uh, Microbe, is an artist and his preferred stroke material are these nudes that he draws himself, which is <laughs> such a funny sequence. Uh, uh, those are some nice touches. It's pretty minor, but it is, uh, it's a charmer. There's no denying it. Microbe and Gasoline, that is now available on demand. As is Lake Cowboys. Thomas Biddigan's remake of The Searchers, set in Europe in the years before and after September 11th. And what is intriguing about this film is that it takes the kind of the kind of lost girl storyline of the searchers and the racism of the searchers, and it applies it to Europe and the Muslim community. Mm. The daughter who goes missing uh, runs off with a Muslim kid who and and becomes his wife, and uh, Alan, who is the father, and his son. Uh, spend years looking for her, and it's a journey that kind of takes them far and wide and over over long periods of time into including a, a trip abroad that has an appearance from John C. Riley that is very memorable. It's a not, I think, a perfect film, but as far as reapplying 
these kind of sweeping concepts of the searchers to a whole other setting and to a whole other kind of relationship and dynamic between people, it is really interesting. That is Lake Cowboys. And finally, new on demand and one I'm very curious about is Phantasm Ravager, mm. otherwise known as Phantasm Five. This is the latest in the Phantasm series. The final installment, in fact. Sure. Uh, the first not directed by Don Coscarelli, though he was involved. He's a co-writer, producer, directed by David Hartman. Stars a lot of your favorites, including Angus Scrim as the tall man. Sure. Is apparently almost impossible to comprehend plot-wise, <laughs> but uh, a real treat if you've been longing for more Phantasm. So that is Phantasm Ravager, and that is also available now on demand. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You know that feeling when a guy you like sends you a text at two o'clock on a Tuesday night asking if he can come and find you and you've accidentally made it out like you've just got in yourself so you have to get out of bed, drink half a bottle of wine, get in the shower, shave everything, dig out some agent provocateur business, suspend about the whole bit and wait by the door until the buzzer goes. And then you open the door to him like you've almost forgotten he's coming over. Oh, Hi. Every episode of Film Spotting SVU's main review is chosen by you, the listeners. Yes, you, person listening to my voice right now, you did or could have picked the TV show we are about to talk about. The options we gave last time were all of the new tourist television variety. We had Crisis on Six Scenes, the new and first and probably only TV series ever created by Woody Allen. We had Easy, the new anthology series from Netflix and Joe Swanberg. And we had Fleabag, a critically acclaimed show from the UK written by and starring Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And I think this is a rare instance where Alice and I were very surprised by the results. Yes, and I will say pleasantly surprised sure. on my part. Yes. Uh, we, if we had to guess, I think we pro- both would have predicted that Woody Allen would have won. And if not Woody, then perhaps Joe Swanberg, who's a filmmaker we've talked about many times on this show, but also the old show we used to do, IFC News Podcast. So there was sort of a, a continuity of conversation I could see people being interested in hearing. But, in fact, it was Phoebe Waller-Bridge who reigned supreme. Fleabag got 40% of the vote to Easy's 32% of the vote and Crisis in Six Scenes 27% of the vote. I guess, and this shocked me, but maybe when you tell people your TV show is terrible and you made a huge mistake in even <laughs> considering making it, maybe people listen to that, actually. Uh, it's possible. It's and possible. Certainly when your reviews seem to support that, uh, that claim. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe people just didn't want to hear me do my Woody Allen impression for like 45 minutes. I, I definitely did not. I so. concede that Thank that would you. be a motivator for Thank some you, people. Voters. Thank you. <laughs> you spared us. Maybe I'll do this one in it anyway, just for the heck of it. I really wish you wouldn't. All right, fine. Fleabag is a co-production of the BBC and Amazon, who are really ramping up their their TV production of both movies and television, I guess, in an attempt to compete with Netflix. We recently talked about their most recent pilot season, something they do quite a bit. 
Uh, the show focuses on Waller Bridges' title character, who's unnamed but is referred to as Fleabag. It's her nickname. Apparently, that is the real Phoebe Waller Bridges' nickname amongst her family, from what I've read. She plays a woman living in London. She runs a hamster themed cafe. Guinea pig. Oh, guinea pig. Uh, what? They're the same thing. Who cares? Oh. <laughs> I hope we get hate mail from the guinea pig fans out there. Uh, she previously operated this with her best friend, who is no longer in the picture for reasons I suspect we may discuss in our review. She also has a sister who is perpetually frustrated and or disappointed by her. She has a father who, uh, since the death of his wife and, and their mother of cancer, has taken up with this uh, the, the godmother of the two sisters, who's played, I thought, quite wonderfully by Olivia Coleman. And then threaded through all of this family drama is also Fleabag's love life, which has some ups and downs, shall we say. So Phoebe Waller-Bridge based this series on a play that she wrote and starred in of the same name, and she frequently breaks the fourth wall to comment on or even sometimes predict the action on screen, which is where the theme of this week's podcast comes from. So I just thought, let's start there, Allison. What did you think of the direct address conceit on this show, and did you think it added to the overall presentation of Fleabag? Well, so this is based on, I believe, a one-woman show, which right. I think makes the direct address seem like an understandable outgrowth. But I think on screen, it actually it it achieves this whole different feeling in that I, one of the things I, I really like this series, and I think one of the things that makes it work so well, is that it appears initially to be this kind of gal about town, uh, you know, 20 or 30-something, single living kind of series you know one that's like uh she talks to the camera she's very salty she's very urbane yes and i think that the way that it reveals itself to in fact be as much if not much more a a story about mourning and grief Mm. and guilt uh, that 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 tension is great, and I think really brought about by the fact that she talks to the camera all the time Mm. at first it seems like this kind of winking thing. I'm letting you in on how funny, isn't this funny? All of this is so funny and absurd. And it is funny. And it is very funny. But after a while, you start to realize that we are her confidant because she has no one close in her life. Mm. The audience is essentially this surrogate friend when she has no one else that she feels she can talk to, honestly. Yeah, that's that's true. And I, I like the fact, as you said, that there's sort of... There is a an intimacy to breaking the fourth wall because you are looking into the camera, you're talking, and so it, it we assume, and this is something probably we'll talk about in our recommendations later. Like that, that when someone is talking to us that way, that they're being honest, that they're being truthful, that because we feel like we're we're being given information that the people on screen are not getting. We're being let into a secret, a right. confidence. Yeah, exactly. And so when we slowly begin to perceive that she's not even being truthful with us or entirely truthful with us, I think that's a wonderful reveal. And it kind of it sneaks up on you in a way that I think if it hadn't been for the device, I might have seen some of the surprises coming. You know what I mean? Uh, like that because she doesn't tell us, we don't necessarily suspect these things are wrong until it's until almost the moment that they actually reveal it on the show, which. You know, like there were developments in the story of this that surprised me that in a way that like almost surprised me to the extent that they surprised me. Yeah, you 
I think that when you first watch this, you think that you have all of the information on the table. and Right, because she's so honest, almost too honest. I mean, like, the I mean, things she's talking about in terms of her sex life, it's, well, like, shocking. Well, the, I mean, this, the, the series starts off with this scene that is deliberately intended to be, like, this is how risque the show is going right. to be. And it is a kind of a joke about... It's an encounter uh, uh, that goes into unexpected anal sex. And then... And then becomes, in a way that I think is really telling about Phoebe Waller-Bridge's sense of humor, uh, it gets turned around to be this almost juvenile joke in which she wonders if she has a particularly large asshole, as she puts it. And, and I think that there's a bravado to that, you know, that yeah. it is like crashing into the room and telling a very dirty joke to almost push the boundaries so far out that people don't look at you as closely, mm. you know? And I, I think that it is very deft with that right? in a way that I don't really, I can't really think of anything else that real, has attempted that. No, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it really is almost like a defense mechanism. And, and like, as you said, to keep you, even though, even as she's bringing us in to what seems like the most intimate, most private thing, she's actually doing it as a sort of way to keep us at arm's length and to keep us from the secret that she's hiding, which is kind of amazing. Like, like just like technically the way that she does that. And I think in general, the way that the move, the show rather starts off so funny. Like I was laughing out loud at the first episode and that by the end of it, it is a real gut punch. Some of the stuff that you discover about what she's done and, and what's how she feels. Right. Right. And the guilt that this, this character is bearing, like it really is. It's a punch in the gut. It's brutal. And I did not, and certainly it catches you off guard the way that it starts. And it's almost like I probably should have said this up top. It's like, if you haven't watched the show yet, you should just take our our recommendation and watch the whole, and thing. Watch the whole it's, thing. It's three, it's three hours, hours right. Yeah, it is, unlike some of those Netflix shows that I've struggled to get through, it, it's a breeze. It goes by very quickly, six half hours. And it really does surprise me. It surprised me in a way that very few films or television shows recently have. Not, on, not only in terms of like where it went, but how I felt about it. Like the, my reactions to it constantly surprised me. Like, wow, this is not what I was expecting. And then, wow, this is not what I was expecting. And then, wow, this was not what I was expecting. Like, it just keeps pulling the rug out from under you in a way that I found really entertaining. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the show was created by and written by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And she's such a, a kind of memorable talent. Like, yeah. she's very pretty, but also has this almost like, I don't, the, the, honestly, though, what I kept thinking of after a while was like Bugs Bunny in the almost like yes. vaudevillian asides, the ca- like, for sure, and like winks and like knowing glances, absolutely, and the physical comedy, which is like a large part of this series, for all that it is a kind of raunchy, urbane uh, story of city living, mm-hmm. and uh, it is also filled with. Uh, in the first episode, there is a scene in which her very uptight sister, who she's not particularly emotionally close with, mm-hmm. goes in for a hug and it turns into like someone getting punched in the face in a way she's that's so really spectacular. Yeah. Because they're also they're both it's so out of their wheelhouse of normal interactions. Yes. And I think is so is the kind of interaction that happens in this series often. Right. It's not very similar in terms of the way it looks and feels and the technique, but it, this reminded me in a way of when I discovered the original British version of Coupling, which is a good show, and it's really funny, and it also has like the, the stuff on the sort of sexual side of things. This reminded me of that in just the sense that like there's so little on television that gets to like do this sort of thing on American television. Like that even today in 2016, it's still sort of a 
taboo, risque thing where the only times you really see this stuff to me, maybe I'm wrong because I don't watch as much television. But it just seems like how it, much HBO you watch is really well. But the isn't it something that you see more on dramas though? That it's not something you get addressed <laughs> in comedies that much. Here, the thing I will say is that it other aside from girls, right? Like I think okay. girls and the the sex in girls and the frankness of it. But in girls, often the point of the sex scenes is just how bad the sex is, you know? right? Like how kind of like poor the communication is, and how. And I don't think that is what. Uh, Waller Bridge is getting at in the, mm-hmm. her scenes here. Mm-hmm. In the, these, it's almost like for her character, sex has become a way of like getting under someone's skin, seeing a part of them that you don't normally get to see. Mm-hmm. You know, I know there's a, a line where she says, you know, I'm not obsessed with sex. I just can't stop <laughs> thinking about it. Right. And then talks about, you know, the feel of it, the, like the weirdness, awkwardness of it, not necessarily the feel of it. It's right. not even a pursuit of like sexual pleasure so much as just all of the weird, awkward rawness of it right. that she is addicted to. Okay, but not okay for then. Besides girls, and maybe a couple of examples on television. What about in movies? Like it's a, it's something that oh, it, it's movies, even worse in movies. No, I think that TV is actually far ahead of right. movies in terms of that. And so maybe that's where my sort of the way I found it refreshing is: is this is like covering movies primarily? We just don't see it. Like that, that, that this sort of frankness and honesty and humor and treating it not as, you know, if there is a movie that's about sex, it's like a erotic thriller or a, a drama or whatever. And that it can't just be something to be used as a source of comedy like that. That to me felt very refreshing. Yeah, agreed. Even and- though the things that they're talking about are maybe not refreshing is not the normal word I would use to associate because it's so, you know, it's. They're talking about these these things, but I just it was to me I enjoyed it. Well, the, there is a scene in which she has a uh, Fleabag has a boyfriend named Harry who oh, like I, basically I is Harry. is smothering her with just being a good boyfriend. Yeah, <laughs> and she like there's a, a very funny scene in which after they've like finished kind of disastrously uh, having sex, he like kisses her and she's half asleep and she like flinches away <laughs> and it's perfectly done. I did uh, also like the scene in the the the. Uh, the sex position. What was it? The 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 art gallery oh, yes, show. Yes. I'm forgetting how the the yes, godmother. Sex position. The sex yes. position. That's what I thought. Where there is a a a like molding of his torso. Right. And he's <laughs> yes. just pure white and has no genitals. Yes. And I just thought it's it so perfect. perfect to that character. Yes. And like when you when you see this flashback as to why they broke up for the most recent time, as they they break up periodically. Yes. It's just the funniest dirty joke involving her watching a speech from Obama. <laughs> that was so And then hilarious. slowly starting and to reach under to, the covers. Yes, and refusing to admit it when she gets busted. That yeah. was pretty delightful, too. I know. It's, uh, it's got a very salty sense of humor, and it's, it works so well. Now, do we know if there's a chance of, like, a, a second season? Is there more of this? I mean, because it was based on a play. Right. I wonder if this is something that could continue. I mean, she's done another show, which yes. I haven't seen. They, uh, she has a show called Crashing, which she had actually done earlier. Right. That is on Netflix now that you can watch. It's also six episodes. Uh, it, it premiered in, in like the start of this year. Yeah, I've watched it. It's a bit more of a traditional sitcom, though mm-hmm. it has a similarly kind of dirty sense of humor and also sense of underlying melancholy about hmm. like kind of urban disconnect. 
I'd, I'd recommend it. I do not think it is as good as Fleabag, but it is still really good. enjoyable and funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I think that with Amazon on board, the chances of it getting renewed seem higher, though, honestly, I don't feel like I need to You don't more. need more? I, I, other than, like, I enjoy this character a lot, and I enjoy right. her as the performance I guess if I, I guess really it's her. I mean, it's, it's her show, and she wrote it, and she right. stars in it, and it's a great showcase for her. I guess I would be happy to see her do anything, anything. really. I know. This, but I just, do like this character, I like and this I character. do like her perspective uh, i mean the relationship with claire played by shan clifford uh her sister is so wonderful very rich you know they have very little in common except mm-hmm. for all of their shared history and the ways in which they try to be closer kind of yeah. dutifully but also sincerely and the ways in which they're allied against mm-hmm. the godmother played by olivia coleman who you mentioned who is really playing against type uh, she's so often like this warm character and right. she's just so passive aggressive in this and it's fantastic i mean another way in which it surprised me and i feel like i'm kind of just re- rehashing the same points over and over but this is how i felt was it as it starts, it, it seems kind of, I mean, it's obviously not a traditional multi-camera sitcom, but it feels sort of like a sitcom in the sense that it doesn't feel serialized. But then, not only is it, it does it have this story that it follows through, characters who don't even seem that important keep popping up, like the bank manager who is in this one scene, which is very funny, yes. and it just seems like a throwaway moment of awkwardness that you might see on a sitcom, and then that character just keeps coming it's back. crushing. Like, yes. the way he reappears, and it's, it's so so wonderful yeah or um as he's put as he's called arsehole guy yes uh, from that initial encounter which also looks like a throwaway moment like right. he looks like he's there a one night stand for, sort of yeah, thing like to enable that joke yes. and then he becomes a very distinctive <laughs> um if never named yes. uh, part of the story yeah i mean there are not that many characters in this show altogether mm. i also really enjoy the kind of the fuzziness of time in it, it kind of slips through and you're never quite sure of chronology. Yeah. It doesn't s- totally key into the sort of flashbacks that it doesn't, it doesn't call attention to them. It doesn't right. make them super obvious. You I- get it eventually because one of the characters isn't around anymore, but yeah, you're right. It, it's, it's subtle in that way. Yeah. And I, I think that there's something about that, that it is in the end, a portrait of a state of mind, like of someone who is just on the verge of a breakdown, really. Right. On, uh, like, and who has, and I think that it really nicely, key, like, keys you in early to the fact that this is not how she always has been. You know, I think when her, when Harry mentions, like, I've tried to be with you through this and all of that, it's not immediately clear, though, which is, I think, the genius of this, that you, because you're introduced and because you're in that, in that, like, uh, taken into this world under her kind of assured uh, narration, you uh, you assume that this is just her life. Right. Yeah. Anything you didn't... We've been very positive. Anything yeah. you wanted to uh, to put... I, can, I mean, I'll throw out there that I was not a huge fan of her cafe. Uh, oh, the, the, I, the hamster guinea pig I, themed I, cafe. I just loved the terribleness of it. Like, I, I, I love that... She it has is like, terrible. She has a cafe that has like three tables it yes. seems it's like it is so financially impossible to yeah. sustain and i just i just like that it and seemed... i guess they address that on the show i mean right. the fact that it's I mean, failing I just like that it 
it was meant, I, it seemed to me very clearly that it was meant to be a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, know? I suppose. It seemed a little cuter than the rest of the show to me in terms of yeah. uh, the show has such a, to me, sort of a very strong, real perspective that that seemed sort of something from a but I think, a little uh, yeah, more cutesy uh, sure. sort of sitcom, I, I suppose. Agree, but I think that what was nice about that is that that cutesy sensibility was all guided by boo her friend yeah and that like the kind of irony of her being left with this yeah that doesn't really suit her she was not the fan of the guinea pig and she was not the fan and then suddenly then you're there stuck with it by yourself yeah Yeah. that's fair i did not love martin uh the brother-in-law yeah that's true yes that was the other one that i was going to bring up yeah just it just uh, her brother-in-law is is played by brett gelman Mm. is this drunk inappropriate american and i think it feels not quite developed enough. And he didn't really... F- I mean, everyone else is British, so perhaps that's part of it. But it just he just didn't seem to... Like, his comedy didn't seem to fit perfectly with everyone else's. Agreed. He seemed to be working sort of in a different register than everyone else. Right. I Like, uh, almost everyone else, though, I think... Ugh, like, Bill Patterson as the dad Fantastic. has this moment towards the end. Mm-hmm. I think, like, kind of one of the last scenes of them together yeah. that is, like... Heartbreaking. Just, yes. Uh, like it's uh I've seen the series twice now because I wrote about it recently for mm-hmm. BuzzFeed and I that scene the second time around I was just like that is so good. <laughs> I will say the cafe does yield one of my favorite jokes and the funniest moments in the entire series which is the guy who comes in does not want to order anything and then there's like a lengthy scene with no dialogue of him plugging in all of his devices including taking out a gadget to expand the socket so he can fit more I I thought that was just a, a wonderful little moment that I just I, I delighted in that that was that was great so that basically justified even though I wasn't crazy about that cafe that moment it justified just its its presence just for yeah. that joke yeah shall we talk about the ending spoilers for anyone who all right very briefly because yes. we we're going a little long here what all do you right. want what do you want to say about spoilers. the ending I guess I want to know did you interpret her sleeping with Boo's boyfriend as an act of sexual impulsivity or an act to try and keep her friend with her an act of sabotage. Oh, I didn't. I didn't read it as sabotage. No, uh, I read it more as just yeah. The the option A and and something that she you know obviously regretted and felt guilty about. But no, I didn't. Did you read it the second way? Well, the, the second time you watched, watched the whole series, show twice. The second time I watched it, the ways in which that re- that reveal is kind of brought up, which yeah. is like Boo saying I'm in love with him, like all like this. It's all like stressing the seriousness of the relationship Mm. in a way that made it, it seemed to me maybe like a mix of the two, but it did seem to me, it raised the option to me that it was in a way an act of sabotage, deliberately like done. sabotaging your friend's relationship because she didn't want to lose her. Of, yeah, being that's interesting. Kind of pulled away from well, you know the fact that they hide so much of what happened there. The, you know, for someone who has only seen it once, I, I guess it's not surprising now that you're saying this that I didn't catch that. But it's interesting to hear on second viewing when you know what's coming to read the signs. I, 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 it seems plausible to me, your, your theory, and I think it only makes it kind of richer and the, the sort of the guilt yeah. that she feels afterwards, it makes even more sense. I think, you know, if there is something I will say about this as a whole, as a series that I think it does really remarkably well, is to create this sense of the distance between, that can be between physical intimacy and like emotional intimacy, mm. you know, in that her closest relationship is this friendship. And when it's gone, she has nothing that really fulfills that. And that gap is is really it's this like painful sense, this hole in the middle of the series. Yeah. All well, right. 
Good stuff. Yeah. We highly recommend this. Fleabag. It is now streaming on Amazon Prime. Our topic for Q Shots this time, Breaking the Fourth Wall, which was not our original idea, but Allison sort of at the, not the 11th hour, like the 7th or 8th hour. And I think it was a good suggestion because it's certainly the most interesting part of the show. It's so central to it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like the kind of thing where sometimes you might see a movie that starts with a character talking to the camera and then they forget it. It is central to everything about the show and certainly all the comedy, too, the way that she'll... I mean, there's some laughs in Fleabag where it's just her looking at the camera. Just a quick glance will be the funniest thing in a scene. Uh, And by the third or fourth episode, you start to look for them, too, which I think almost makes them funnier. You're anticipating her reactions, which is sort of delightful, too. Uh, Do you want to start? Do you want to give your picks first? Do you have any general uh, observations about talking to the camera? Uh, You know, just the thing that I was thinking was, as we talked about in our main review, was I think that my picks are sort of a little more traditional and confessional. And I did, as you, as you think very correctly pointed out, the thing that one of the things that makes the breaking of the fourth wall in Fleabag so interesting is that it sort of, it upends that traditional use of it where it feels very intimate and like we're being let in on secrets in the way that that character is actually kind of using it to, in a way, deceive us. Um, made that very interesting. I feel like my choices, which I made sort of before I had entirely finished the series, a little more conventional in their usage. Yeah, I feel like when I was just looking over some of the most famous ones uh, that fall into this category, lots and lots of comedy, lots of uh, yes. Woody Allen, Cosby yeah. and Hope, Mel Brooks, Both Marx of my movies Brothers. are comedies. Yeah. We have talked extensively on this show about another TV show that breaks the fourth wall. Right? House of Cards. House of Cards, which is a drama, although is often used sort of as a sarcastic sort of commentary. And I think there are ways in which, uh, on, at times, Fleabag reminded me of that, in mm. that he... A lot of the fourth wall breaking he does, Kevin Spacey does in that, is all like just sometimes just eye contact with the camera. Yeah. To be like, can you believe this? Or I will, like, I know, like, look what I'm going to do. Yeah. It, it's funny because I loved on the show when they would do it. And it seems like they've kind of gotten away from it to a certain extent. In the later seasons, he does it less, for sure. Yes. Um, and there was a brilliant gag in the, the beginning of the second season where he didn't do it at first. And then at a key moment, he started talking again to the camera and it was so effective. But, uh, I feel like in a way the show has gone downhill a little bit, although last season was better, but like, it seems like the decline of the show to a certain extent has kind of coincided with the decreasing of his perspective, him talking to us. I think that was a big hook of the show. I hope in, in in the next season, we get more of it because I, I mean, Kevin, Kevin Spacey has a unique relationship with the camera. When he talks to to you, he's just good at it. He's something about it. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's the fact that he seems to me he's always seemed to me like a kind of failed talk show host. Like he has I that. Can see that. Yeah, I he can has see that. that sort of way of he has this 
intimacy with the camera yeah, where it's he conspiratorial yes yeah yes and i agree i think it works well yeah. but why don't you start what's your first pick okay my first pick i went with one of the other recent examples besides fleabag and house of cards and one that i i found very successful um and that was the big short adam mckay's adaptation of the nonfiction book about the uh, men who realized in the mid-2000s that the u.s housing market was on the verge of collapse and then I'll bet against it in the hope that it would collapse and make them rich. And the film is available now on Netflix. And the housing market's explosion involved some of the most complex economic concepts you can imagine. I mean, in some cases, these are things that the people who are buying and selling them did not fully understand. So making a movie about that requires a very delicate touch. And the way that Adam McKay went about explaining it to the audience very smartly, I think, was to occasionally break the fourth wall, have these characters or these surprise cameo guest stars look directly into the lens, describe these things in very digestible terms. So Selena Gomez pops up comparing synthetic CDOs to betting on a high-stakes poker game. Or you have Anthony Bourdain, who is comparing credit default swaps to fish stew. And the cameos are flashy. They're probably a cheap laugh uh, out of nowhere, you know, like Margot Robbie showing up in a bubble bath talking about the economy. But I think it's a canny use of the fourth wall breaking as well because the characters in The Big Short, for the most part, are pretty unlikable. These are not guys who are not – they're not setting out to prevent the collapse. They are trying to exploit it. And so when you have Ryan Gosling's character – who is one of the guys who's really leading the charge to profit on this collapsing housing market, talk directly to the audience, sort of the same way Kevin Spacey does it as a a really bad guy on House of Cards. He makes you feel like a co-conspirator. And his fleet of cameos explaining this stuff, I mean, the other way to look at it is that these are things that I mean, personally, maybe I could have done more research, I suppose. But these were things that I've never had explained to me before that I I personally didn't really understand. So there's something ingratiating about it. You know, it seems like he's almost doing the audience a favor. You know, it makes you root for these characters in a way that I don't think you would otherwise. And then uh, thinking about specifically the fourth wall breaking in the movie, there's something sort of almost efficient about it that – You know, everyone on screen, even though I did say, like, some people didn't understand this, pretty much for the most part, the people on screen understand it. They're the experts. So to have them sit around and explain it to one another, I think, would be kind of insulting. Or it would just be hard to do because you would literally have characters suddenly, without reason, saying, well, wait, what does that mean? And then having to have someone explain it. So having these breaks of the fourth wall gives you the license to explain it to the audience without insulting our intelligence by having brilliant stock traders explain it to each other. And I think that that all of that works and it makes what could be a really dry subject, something a lot more fun, entertaining and, and warm, something that could be very cold and dry and and boring. So uh, this was a a movie I definitely enjoyed. I've watched it. I've liked like It's a movie that I've watched several times, which you know, for uh, a movie about credit default swaps, not something I would have expected. But I've actually put it on on Netflix just to watch like 45 minutes of it because I just enjoy kind of popping in with it. So that's The Big Short. It is available now on Netflix. I do not like The Big Short much at all. But I do think that it achieves something in the like 
very obvious like spoonful of sugaredness mm-hmm. to all of those explanations mm-hmm. in reinforcing its point that you did you have chosen not to want to learn about this because it is boring right it, and, is, and it is and it is yes. that is boring it has deliberate deliberately been made hard and obfuscated and like uh you put into language that you will not want to understand mm-hmm. I, so i think those those bits of uh particularly the celebrity fourth wall breaking are are funny in how they they underscore that my first pick is a movie in which a character breaks the fourth wall really and it's really a way of creating a rapport with a character who can be very difficult to understand otherwise because of uh his and then her the strangeness of those experiences. It is Orlando, which is available for rent. This is Sally Potter's 1992 film uh, based on the novel by Virginia Woolf, starring the great Tilda Swinton as Orlando, who begins the film as an English lord in the in 1600, and is ordered by an elderly Queen Elizabeth I, played uh, keeping with the gender bending theme by Quentin Crisp, uh, to do not fade, do not wither, do not grow old. And Orlando does not. Orlando lives for, proceeds to live for several centuries, remaining uh, unaged, going through uh, getting his heart broken by this Russian aristocrat's daughter and going into battle on behalf of a Turkish ally while serving as an ambassador in Istanbul and is ultimately so bothered by the last part, by, by the expectations that come with manhood that Orlando goes to sleep and wakes up the next morning having been transformed into a woman. Orlando is unfazed by this, uh, saying, say, saying to the camera, same person, no difference at all, just a different sex. Uh, and everyone else does not take it quite so easily, but as the film puts it, because this is England, everyone pretends not to notice. Uh, this character is, is a combination of abstract and innocence given that it is someone who who as i've said lives multiple centuries and i think the addition of the fourth wall breaking whether it's directly addressing the camera at times or or even just making eye contact with the camera i think adds this bit of wittiness to a story that is not necessarily filled that is pretty straightforward about the way it approaches this story and you know, I Tilda Swinton, I think, who can pretty much do anything, is both convincing as a, a kind of androgynous man and as an androgynous woman, um, but but also sells the immediacy of Orlando's experiences as always someone who seems to be fresh to. Uh, as the movie goes on to to love and then to politics and then to to being a woman and actually kind of suddenly finding herself dropped into all of the gender politics and restrictions that come with it and then having an affair with uh, a beautiful American played by Billy Zane who comes riding in and dashing on a on horseback with hair flowing it's I, you know, I think probably Sally Potter's best known film and a really beautifully filmed one. And it is so odd that I think it is the combination of Swinton's just how kind of present she is, but also how much the the talking, the kind of fourth wall breaking lets us in into this strange story. Uh, and it creates this kind of intimacy and sense of humor that uh, I think is surprising given given otherwise the tone. It's a really 
difficult to describe movie, but it is a really rewarding one. And I think it's that approach, the, the kind of creation, the, the use of these asides that, that make it accessible. So that is Orlando and you can rent it all the usual places. All right. My second pick, uh, I think really probably one of the, I have to assume one of the movies that people listening first thought of when the topic came up, one of the most iconic fourth wall breaking movies of all time. And that is 1986's Ferris Bueller's Day Off, written and directed by John Hughes. John Hughes, the great John Hughes. And that film is available now on Netflix. It is the story of a surprisingly hardworking slacker who fakes an illness so he can take his ninth sick day of the year and go party through Chicago with his best friend Cameron and his girlfriend Sloane. And uh, I have seen this movie countless times through the year. It was always my favorite John Hughes movie as a kid over the more popular choice of The Breakfast Club, which as a teenager uh, was, at least when we were teenagers, in my area was considered the masterpiece of the John Hughes oeuvre. Amongst my peer group, that was the one that people seemed to consider the the great film, but I was always more of a Ferris fan. I'm not sure now that uh, The Breakfast Club has stood the test of time in the way Ferris Bueller has. I don't know. I'd be interested to hear from young people today looking at these movies, which ones they think still resonate. Maybe they, none of them do. We're old now, so we don't get to say. But I would love to hear from our younger listeners, if we have some, what they think of the John Who's or Hughes oeuvre and which ones they feel uh, hold up. But I do think that there is something to the fourth wall breaking in Ferris Bueller that has made it popular for many years. And I think it's a smart choice to let this character specifically talk directly to the audience. And again, it, it, it is a similar kind of idea where he makes us, by talking to us, something of a co-conspirator. I mean, Ferris Bueller is, at his core, a liar. He is deceiving his parents. He, you know, he, he basically lies to everybody except those closest friends, but he's straight with us. He gives us, he even tells us how to fake an illness like him. You know, you lick your palms so you have clammy hands. That's the trick, Allison. You don't want to fake a fever because then you might wind up in a doctor's office. And you, that's worse than going to school. Um, I think it also, you know, the talking to the camera in a way, it sort of underlines how smart Ferris Bueller is. It is almost like he is so smart, he can not only trick everyone, he knows that he is in a movie. He's like that smart. He is the most smart fictional character. He understands that he is fictional and he can talk to us about what's going on. And tell us when to go home at the end. Exactly. I was going to get to that in a few minutes. Yes. But he's also, besides being very smart, he's, he is the ultimate cool kid. You know, there's that classic line that Grace, the secretary, says where he's very, he's very popular with the sportos, the motorheads, the geeks, et cetera, et cetera. They all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. So when he talks to us, that makes us feel cool. And I think there's a reason, that's the reason, I should say, that a guy like me loved Ferris Bueller when I was that age because I was not cool. And I think that there's something about him talking to us that enables us to kind of tap into this sort of teenage wish fulfillment. We wish we had the guts to pretend we were sick and go do this stuff and hang out in a parade and catch a ball at a Cubs game, you know. As an adult... Looking at a little of this movie last night, like, all I see now is how terrible things are going to work out for Ferris, Ferris Bueller. Like, this is as good as it gets for this kid, probably. But as a kid, 
when he tells me personally, life moves pretty fast. And if you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Like I felt like I was being imparted the wisdom of the ages, you know, like that seemed like something important. And it and it suddenly makes you or me. I don't want to say you me. It made me feel cool or at least uh, adjacent to cool in a way that I never really felt in my actual life. Uh, So, of course, Allison already mentioned it, that the the fourth wall breaking goes right through to the end of the movie up until the one of the earliest post-credit scenes is in Ferris Bueller, actually. Not the first, but one of the earliest when he comes back out at the end and says, you're still here. The movie's over. Go home. And that is a gag that is still being copied to this day. It was it was uh, parodied in Deadpool earlier this year. Another fourth wall breaking movie about a rebellious anarchist looking to stick it to the man. So there is there is something to this technique that makes troublemakers lovable. I think that is really the key takeaway from my picks. Um, it makes people doing bad stuff that we might otherwise not condone. It makes us go, okay, let's see what they're like. I, I, I'll let them do it because they, you know, there's something to bringing us into the scheme that I think maybe not all of us, but maybe just me that I'm sort of predisposed to sort of be willing to go along when, when someone does that. So that is Ferris Bueller. Probably not too many people in our audience who haven't seen it, but maybe not. Maybe that again, maybe the young, young folks today. Wow. Do I sound old? The young folks today. Maybe some of them haven't seen it. It is available now on Netflix. There is a famous fan theory in which yes. uh, it is speculated yes. that Cameron Fry, yes. the character played by Alan Ruck, yes. uh, has made up Invented Ferris. Ferris. Yes, yes. I, I know this theory. And that uh, because Ferris is an impossible character. Sure. That he is, you can't be popular with the sporters and the motorheads and everyone else. It is impossible. That is right. against the rules of high school. Uh, and get all of these magical things done. That this is all like sure. some huge hallucination in friendless Cameron's head. The dark Ferris Bueller take. Ironically, uh, the star of my pick, uh, my second pick, Sarah Jessica Parker, recently (laughs) went on the Nerdist (laughs) podcast and announced uh, her own version of this kind of classic style of fan theory. Okay. Noting that she thought, she always wondered if her character... Uh, Carrie Bradshaw, sure. dating cal- columnist in Manhattan, had just made up her friends, Charlotte, oh. Miranda, and Samantha. Two quotes. I used to wonder if Charlotte, Samantha, uh, if Samantha, Charlotte, and Miranda were real, that that wasn't just her column. They're such perfectly archetypal yes. characters. Yes, so I see So you're writing it. a column about sexual politics, yes. and observations of female, male, primarily heterosexual relationships. And so you're picking one type. You're saying this type is this and this, and you complicate it more like any good writer does. So I'm not entirely sure they are real what we are seeing is not necessarily what happened in new york Sarah jessica parker is a smart let me tell you something i like that fan theory or actor theory a lot better than the ferris bueller fan theory yeah okay fair enough um so i bring up sex in the city which you can of course watch on hbo go but you can also stream in its six season entirety on amazon Amazon, prime thanks to its deal with hbo Uh, because, and I think it's very easy to forget this, but Sex and the City, for the first season and a few episodes into its second season, was a show in which characters talked to the camera. They didn't do it regularly, but they did it fairly frequently, 
especially if you rewatch the pilot episode, which features not just Carrie speaking to the camera, in addition to what is the kind of usual format of every episode, which is based around her column and her musings and voiceover about men and women and dating, speaking directly to the camera. And then the other characters speak to the camera as well. And minor characters do. There's almost this Greek chorus of voices of different people speaking about whatever topic the episode is about directly to the camera, giving their thoughts on, for instance, in the first episode, having, quote unquote, sex like a man. Uh, You know, all of these characters weighing in from Miranda to some random guy who is introduced as a toxic bachelor. It is a pretty annoying format, I will say. It is, it's, I think there's a reason that the show slowly like sloughed this off, but Mm. also that we don't remember the show this way. Mm. And I think it is, it speaks to the fact that if in Orlando, my first pick, uh, the speaking to the camera was a way of letting you into the life of this character who was, for good reasons, uh, a little opaque, a little uh, distant, that I think Sex and the City starts off with this format because it thinks its characters have to make that extra effort to let you in. And it, in a way, when the show begins this way, it it suggests that it is more a show about sex in the city of New York than it is about Carrie and Charlotte and Samantha and Miranda for female friends, their relationships with each other and their relationships with the various men in their lives. And so it's funny that uh, the, the show takes a while to kind of segue into being about uh, being just a show about these four women. Right. But, of course it's a show about those four women. Like, it's funny that it would ever take, it would need kind of any question there. When you watch that first episode, it does seem like they are more vehicles for the show to take on different topics than they are the focus. So I, I it's kind of, it's, it's fascinating when you, when, if you are someone who has, who was like, uh, as I was, a kind of sporadic watcher of later seasons, when you go back and rewatch the beginning of the show, it is markedly different. And I think it's great that they got rid of it because it just is a distancing technique rather than, as you know, we've said in, in, in so many other examples here, one that lets you in. So if you were a fan of Sex and the City and haven't watched those early episodes uh, recently, it's worth taking a look at that first one just for how sideways its approach is to what becomes this, you know, comedy about four beloved characters, even if three of them are imaginary. That is Sex and the City, and you can watch it on Amazon Prime and on HBO Go. Before we talk about some new releases, let's briefly mention that there is a live film spotting SVU show coming to Chicago Friday, November 18th at Shuba's Lincoln Hall. We are the opening act for film spotting. It's going to be a double bill of film spotting and film spotting SVU. I am looking at the website right now, which is LH dash st.com and tickets are still available as of this recording so come on out come see us it's our first live show ever in chicago and who knows if there will ever be another it's true so this is might be your only chance to see us in chicago live with adam and josh it should be a great show i'm really looking forward to it uh, again the uh, the website is lh dash st.com look for us buy the tickets come see us it's going to be a lot of fun thank you all right, let's talk about some new releases. 
Allison, do we want to talk about the movie that only you have seen very briefly first, or you want to just dive right into... Yeah, let's let's talk about The Girl on the Train. Okay, you've seen it. I have seen it. You have not seen I it. I haven't seen For it. For religious reasons, you had to skip it. <laughs> right. Yes, this movie was against my religion. Yeah. Absolutely. So this is based on the very popular book, has Emily Blunt. I know that. It has Emily Blunt. Directed by Tate Taylor. Yes, director of The Help. Our Generation's Hitchcock. Uh, uh, director of The Help, which was not a very good movie, and director of the surprisingly good Get On Up, which I think we have Yeah, discussed. that was pretty good. We have discussed yes. on this podcast before. Yes. Uh, the Girl on the Train, I would say, is not surprisingly good. It is it, it almost, it doesn't almost try to be surprisingly good or good it just aims to mop up you know whatever fans of gone girl are around who mm. are kind of hoping for more of this like uh scandal missing woman in a small town uh un- unreliable narrator you know uh kind of gender politics thing mm-hmm. and it does have those things i think it's pretty clumsy uh and it, uh, it's it's pacing is miserable like i think as a thriller it is so slack and like so kind of not good at introducing its various possible suspects uh it does have a very good performance from emily blunt uh as this character who is this self-loathing alcoholic who mm-hmm. rides a train each day in order to pretend she still has a job in manhattan right and on the way passes by the house she used to live in with justin throw who has since left her for right, rebecca new... ferguson right and had a baby with her but i will say the thing that i do think is interesting about this movie is just the ways in which it portrays this like like a like idea this mirage of like idyllic uh suburban living as this horrible trap that its three main characters have kind of keep tell like told themselves they want to fit themselves into and then are all miserable for different reasons in mm-hmm. and i think that it does that well like it's set in this town on off of the metro north uh, on the, by the hudson river that i'm sure is perfectly nice in person but becomes this symbol of like uh internalized gender expectations in a way that's uh that's pretty kind of dark and funny mm-hmm. uh, in this movie so i think for our for all that I don't think it's a particularly good movie or a good thriller, I think there are parts of it that linger on. Uh, and I did not adore Gone Girl, but Gone Girl is certainly a more skillfully made movie. Mm-hmm. Look, when I watch this movie on basic cable, drunk one night, am I going to like it? No, but you no. won't hate it. Okay. It'll get, I'll get through it. Yes. And I'll be like, that was fine. I need another whiskey. You'll be like, that was, that was uh, mostly a failure with some interesting bits. Okay. Fair enough. Well, let's talk about uh, our next film. Uh, it is called The Birth of a Nation, and this is from director, writer, co-writer, and star Nate Parker. Uh, was uh, hailed at Sundance, a huge critical favorite at Sundance, favorite with the audience as, as well. It is the story of the uh, true story of, an, of a slave uprising in, I believe, the 1830s, led by a man named Nat Turner, who was played by Nate Parker. And uh, the film was, it seemed to be on the fast track to awards galore. And I guess over the summer was when really it, it sort of started to come out. These It was, I think, right in August. Was okay, it so late stories? summer. Uh, it was right before Toronto. Okay, there were all these stories. Certainly weren't secret. They had been discussed previously, but sort of just had sort of faded into the background, let's say, these uh, these incidents in Nate Parker's past, specifically this one incident. 
He was accused of raping this woman in college with actually the co-writer of the film uh, was who involved. Was, who was, like he was acquitted, but John Nate Sel- Parker was acquitted. Yeah, John was uh, found guilty, guilty, but then the Two conviction later was later was overturned. overturned. Right. But the accuser eventually committed suicide. It's a very it ugly, ugly case. Yeah. It's just ugly all around, even though he was found innocent. Nate Parker was. So it's it, it definitely seemed to sour people to him, if not the film. But let's try to talk about the film, I guess. What did you think of the film? You saw it at Sundance. Yeah, I can't remember if we talked about it off of Sundance when I came I in. can't either. I mean, I haven't seen it since then. Mm-hmm. I feel like the way I felt out of Sundance, which is that I think Nate Parker set out to make uh, to make this story of a slave rebellion and this moment of kind of like black uh, rebellion against and kind of like a movie about like uh, particularly the horrors of slavery and this moment of black rebellion uh, that he set out to make that in the style of Braveheart. He wanted yes. to make like a big pop Hollywood movie and never had the funding for that. He got $10 million and he still made a movie that is in that format. I do not love Braveheart, but I do respect that in the movie he set out to make, he said, you know, I mean, one of the reasons that people were so excited about this movie at Sundance is because it was like a, a pop movie that it was like a you know a kind of populist production right i mean it seemed like the kind of thing that could win an oscar for sure and i think you know he succeeded in making that with all the kind of like uh hollywoodized compromises that come with that uh and it's you know rousing and super violent and um has women that are largely used as motivation for the men as is braveheart uh you know i he thanks Mel Gibson in the credits. Uh, sure. You know, I think he he delivered the movie that he set out to make. And right. I think that if all of these very ugly things from his past, uh, I think regardless of the of whether or not he was convicted, I think like those cell phone transcripts and also the way he has talked about it, right. the incident in interviews, just done himself no favors at all. Uh you know, I think if those things had kind of, if that had stayed quiet, I think that it would be an Oscar favorite. For it would sure. not be my favorite movie of the year, nope. but I think it would be an Oscar favorite. I, I agree with you there. It's interesting because I didn't see, I didn't go to Sundance. I didn't see it at Sundance. I saw it at Toronto. Uh, so to see the movie after all of this stuff had come out, I mean, in a way, it, it, it is one of, I think it's one of the most interesting, I know, and I, of course, in setting up our discussion, I was like, well, let's try to talk about the movie. And now I'm going to say <laughs> that it's like, it is one of the most fascinating cases of trying to separate artist and artist, art and artist I could think of, because so much of his past seems bound up in the movie he well, made. Even beyond that, it is a movie in which he casts himself as like a chosen one, yes. like chosen by God, yes. like having messages, you know, and, and, and which this, is like the real Nat Turner, uh, you know, felt. Also. Sure. But he also cast the Nat Turner character as a guy who is essentially like an avenger of this sexual abuse that's going on in this uh, slave society in the South in this period, which I'm sure existed. But the fact that he is the one who has, you know, cast himself as the guy who's going to sort of avenge. I mean, it is almost directly. It's not just that slavery is bad. And so he starts this rebellion in the movie. It is. It's like that final straw, essentially, right, is this act of violence, right? Uh, which is yeah. kind of I mean, it's hard. It's very hard to separate when you're watching the movie. I don't I don't like I, I feel like having the art from the artist discussion is I mean, a difficult one because I think it also depends on like at what point what someone has done in their personal lives, how much it appears in their sure. film. But I think also with Nate Parker, 
it's not just that Nate Parker made a movie. Nate Parker also wanted to be a voice of social justice yes. and and to tour colleges and churches and you know talk about social justice and to be a public moral voice. Yes. And I think that it makes the art from the artist argument much more complicated mm-hmm. because he did not want to be separated out from his movie. <laughs> right, until it, it became was, inconvenient. Yeah, he yeah. was always the core. It was his story. He chose not to act anymore for a right. few years. To so raise, raise the money, the money and write the know, script. I, sure. Like, yes. yeah. But like I said, I think that's those are all part of the facets that mm-hmm. make – and in a way, I think it like that's – some of the most interesting stuff in the movie. I thought the movie was fine, actually. Like there, I think there are some very effective parts of it. I thought Army Hammer actually gives a very good performance, maybe the best performance in the movie, as this very conflicted slave owner who you see as, as sort of this guy who's sort of caught up in this horrible system. And in a way, I feel like his character almost speaks to a lot of the stuff, the issues that are going on around the movie, even more than the Nat Turner character sure. does. I mean, what I think the movie does really well is that it makes him this kind of character who's sympathetic and who feels bad. Right. And then, but he's still and a monster. He's still a monster. Yes. He is still that the fact that he feels bad is does not make a difference. Exactly. He participates and and benefits from the system of exactly. oppression and the movie punishes for him. At the exactly. End. And I think that that is something that frankly you would not see in a film made by a white filmmaker. Probably not. Yeah. Probably not. And I think that it, that certainly is something that this movie brings for you. Yeah, I did think it was otherwise there are some there's some stuff in it that I thought was just kind of ridiculous. Oh, it's hokey. It's yeah. very hokey. I I thought the ending was kind of you mentioned it's very violent, which it is but I found the ending kind of anticlimactic. It feels like, he, he like a little movie. He doesn't, he doesn't have, have the, budget. the budget to make the movie he wants to make, yes. and that's where it's really evident. The period details are pretty good throughout until the ending. I thought the ending, just it just doesn't live up to this sort of the build that you're expecting. And so, yeah, I think it's, you know what it is? It's like a decent first movie from a filmmaker. Like, that's ultimately what it is. And it has some very powerful stuff in it, and it's got some other stuff that's not great. Uh, and the issues around it are very complicated and fascinating and horrifying and troubling so that's the birth of <laughs> the, a, end. the end the birth of a nation uh so there you go all right we talked about some recent uh, new movies let's get to behind the eight ball where we talk about some new movies on streaming we give you some listener me- recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address svu at filmspotting svu.com and we also give you one film chosen blindly by number from our my lists on netflix Allison, who's going first this time? I'm going first. Are you sure? Yes. Are you positive? I am so positive. Okay. Well, why don't we start with three new releases? Okay. Well, let's go into a a film first that I think, due to timing and subject matter, has suddenly been raised up as like the alternative to Birth of a Nation. I think, which I think like ends up being like, oh, you have to pick one black film. You can only be spot for one black filmmaker. It is Ava DuVernay's 13th, mm-hmm. which is new on Netflix, fresh off of opening the New York Film Festival, the first documentary to open the New York Film Festival, and I think the first film to end up on Netflix not long after doing that. It is a documentary drawing a line kind of directly from slavery to mass incarceration in America, and is, in a lot of ways, it is like a unifying history of America's kind of racism and oppression against its black population. Uh, it is I, I don't think that Avery DuVernay's strengths are in documentary as much as they are in narrative film but uh, we can talk about that maybe later for you know uh, but 13th uh, the, uh, very rarely do you have a film that come, goes from being like having such a prominent place in something like the New York Film Festival to going to being available and streaming so quickly so certainly there is no more timely film in terms of uh, things that are commanding the national conversation 
new to Amazon Prime is Pushing Hands. This is Ang Lee's 1992 directorial debut uh, about an elderly Chinese uh, grandfather and teacher of Tai Chi who moves from Beijing to outside of New York to live with his, his son and his family and kind of struggles to adjust to life in America. That's uh, a really good movie. Ang Lee has Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk coming out soon. We'll have seen it, I think, next we speak. Um, so we can let you know how that is. And finally, new to Netflix is Chevalier. Uh, this is the most recent film from Athena Rachel Sangari, who made the film Attenberg, and who is a colleague of Yorgos Lanthimos, who made most recently The Lobster. They are part of, I don't know what it's called, new, the new Greek cinema. Sure. There's a lot of like very weird, very deadpan funny Greek cinema coming from basically the two of them. Yeah. Uh, and this is, this is uh, a film about men on a yacht who basically decide after like various forms of uh, informal competition between them on this yacht vacation, assemble a, a formal competition to decide who is best and do things, compare everything from things like hair loss and fitness to who can assemble a bookshelf the fastest is very weird and deadpan. Uh, if you're a fan of the lobster, this is, is I think right is related. I gotta watch so that this is one. Chevalier. It is on Netflix. All right, I'm adding that to my Netflix queue as I speak right now. But how about you give us some listener recommendations? All right. First up, we have a recommendation from Jason, who writes, who wrote this to me. Uh, he said, my dad is a first-generation Filipino who moved to Chicago when he was a teenager, so I'm glad you wrote the 28 Asian-American filmmakers you need to know BuzzFeed piece earlier this year. I did write that. If you are interested in Asian-American film, you can look that up. Uh, Jason writes, my recommendation is for Everything Before Us, which seems to be in the vein of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It was directed by Wesley Chan and Philip Chan of Wong Fu Productions. It won an award in the 2015 Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival, and it stars mainly an Asian cast, including Aaron Yu of the film 21 and Randall Park of the TV series Fresh Off the Boat. My wife played it on Netflix one day, and I never heard of it, was instantly pulled into this high-concept film that has a lot to say about the effects of relationships and of society status, which I honestly felt was a little more clever and sincere than the recently, play, pra, than the recently praised Colin Farrell movie, The Lobster, bringing us all around. Um, I have not heard of that, that film either, and I will add that to my queue. Thank you, Jason. And finally, we have a recommendation from Tess, uh, not for a movie, but for a service. Uh, Tess writes, have you ever run a recommendation via Watch TCM, the free service offered by Turner Classic Movies when you pay for cable? They have a great collection of easy-to-stream movies. Only one problem, their entire catalog seems to change weekly. That makes it great for people like me who love great classic and old Hollywood classics, uh, many that are often out of print and not available to stream anywhere else. It's also a total pain in the butt because I'm lazy and the films vanish before I know it. Mm. No good to recommend a specific title but go there now and you won't be bummed you did um i do not have cable so i cannot access this but i have heard many good things about this right. and turner classic movies is going to be launching filmstruck yes. later this month which is a new service for 
you can buy whether you have cable or not. Right. And that will include an add-on of all of the Criterion movies. Right. And that's going to have a lot of the – it's with TCM and Criterion and it's going to have yes. – The reason that the, the, the catalog on Watch TCM changes so much is because it's based on what they've shown on the network. Yeah, I kind of figured. And so they have like a certain very brief window that they can show it online in that same period. So that's why things cycle in and out very time. quickly. Yeah. Yes. But I think Filmstruck is going to have a – Have a bit more stable. Yes. They've catalog. talked about how the, they're going to be adding things weekly, but I don't think p- things will be disappearing. Hearing quite so frequently, yeah, yeah. So, um, I, you know, we are obviously looking forward to Filmstruck arising, but yes. uh, that is also something to keep in mind. In addition to watch TCM, thank you, Tess, for that recommendation. All right, and one film on my list. You gave me number eight. That is The Witness, uh, directed by James Solomon. This is the doc from earlier this year about Kitty Genovese. Uh, this is the description from the film's website. Kitty Genovese became synonymous with apathy after news that she was stabbed to death on a New York City street while 38 witnesses did nothing. 40 years later, her brother decides to find the truth. He uncovers a lie that transformed his life, condemned the city, and defined an era. Uh, and so, I don't know, in a way, this is almost like a true crime documentary it falls into that, but like the kind of classy true crime surge that we're in. Uh, I don't know. I'm always like Kitty Genovese is a very interesting story, both in like how that was interpreted and mm. how it was later kind of disproven. And I think this is a doc that really challenges that. So that's one I added to my my list. I just added it too. I'm learning. This is great. I'm getting all kinds of movies to watch. I'm so This inform- podcast is fantastic. So informative. <laughs> all right, Matt, are you ready? Yeah. All right. Well, why don't you give me three new releases? Well, I've got a trio of documentary recommendations this time, starting with the classic concert film, The Last Waltz, which is now available on Amazon Prime. It's directed by Martin Scorsese. It's about the farewell concert of the band. And it begins with one of the all-time great title cards in cinema. In block letters, this film should be played loud. The band's guest stars include Bob Dylan, Eric Clapton, the staple singers, Van Morrison, and more. It's a great movie. It's a great concert doc. One of my favorites. That's The Last Waltz on Amazon Prime. Next up, one of my favorite documentaries of the last couple years. I saw it last fall at Fantastic Fest. I don't think it ever got a theatrical release, but it is now available on Netflix. It's called Man vs. Snake, The Long and Twisted Tale of Nibbler, and it is about the quest to be the world champion on the old arcade game Nibbler, which I admit I had never heard of and was totally unfamiliar with before this movie. And if this film sounds like The King of Kong, there are definitely some similarities, including the fact that Billy Mitchell appears in Man vs. Snake as actually a little bit more of a sympathetic figure than he did in The King of Kong. But if you like that documentary, I think you'll really enjoy this one as well. The big difference here really is the game. Instead of Donkey Kong, which is this iconic game everyone knows, Nibbler is an obscure game that very few people know. So it has sort of more of a, like, forget about trying to be the best at a game everyone plays. Imagine what it it takes to try to be the best at a game that nobody really cares about, except a tiny amount of people. And then when you find out that to be the champion of Nibbler, you have to play marathons of the game. I'm talking days, several days straight. It, it just takes on this added wonderful dimension of madness. So that's Man vs. Snake, available on Netflix. And finally, and most recently, also on Netflix, is Amanda Knox, which is yet another of these... Apparently, Netflix must have algorithms that tell them their audience likes true crime, because this is yet another true crime documentary. This one is about the infamous tabloid case about an American college student abroad in Italy 
accused of murdering her British roommate while studying there. I actually didn't really know that much about the case. I knew her name. I knew Amanda Knox's name, but I didn't really follow it. So just learning of the details of the case were very interesting. And then the movie does have extensive interviews with Amanda Knox and with her boyfriend from the time of the murder who was also accused along with her. And so the case itself is fascinating. I think it's a pretty good, very solid treatment of that case. And the angle of it uh, that I found probably the most interesting was the way the media is portrayed in the film. One of the reporters was really enmeshed. Yeah, he's sort of the villain of the movie. Uh, Very horrifying, very relevant with everything that's going on. So this is, you know, it's not five stars. It's a three and a half, four-ish star, but very solid movie. It is Amanda Knox, and it is available now on Netflix. All right. How about two listener recommendations? Our first comes from Jordan B. He writes, Hi, Matt and Allison. Love your show. As a political science junkie and former poli-sci major, I wanted to provide a couple of additional streaming recommendations of political documentaries uh, for the couple of weeks ago. First, I must recommend The Circus on Hulu. Uh, You need the Showtime add-on to watch it. It has been covering the insanity that is the 2016 election in a very unbiased and analytical way. And this is not Jordan writing, but this is me writing saying, I can only imagine what the most recent episodes of The Circus are like. Uh, Jordan also really recommends Street Fight, which is currently available on Amazon Prime. It's a documentary about the mayoral race in Newark between Cory Booker and the incumbent mayor. It's a very interesting analysis of issues of race within the black community between two black men running for the same office. Thank you so much for all you do. I love the podcast so much. That was from Jordan, and his recommendations were Circus, uh, The Circus on Hulu with Showtime and Street Fight on Amazon Prime. Thank you, Jordan. We've also got a recommendation here from George L., who writes, Don't remember if you two have reviewed Ark, the Netflix original, but if you did, please let me know what episode I should listen to. If you didn't, and we didn't, you should definitely add it to a show along with other time travel movies like The One I Love and Predestination. I love the show. And that is from George. Arc is spelled A-R-Q, and it's a recent edition. Yeah, it was at Toronto, I believe, right. and then went directly to Netflix as well. Right. Yeah. We haven't had a chance to see it, but not. I've heard some good things about it. We'll have to check it out at some point. I think we had talked about putting it as a my, uh, my list, as a listener recommend, a listener's choice options. We've got so many damn things on this show. Uh, but we named just, most of these. I know. What was I thinking? Uh, but, but we haven't done that yet. But I'm glad we at least got uh, to mention it on the show, thanks to that recommendation from George. Thank you, George. All right. One from your My List. Well, you gave me number five, and before I added two more movies uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, number five on my My List was Mountains May Depart, the most recent film. love it so much. I probably added it after you told me that it was so good. This is the new Zhajanka film. Zhajanka. Thank you. Uh, Director of Platform the World and my favorite of the bunch, A Touch of Sin. I love The Touch of Sin from a couple of years ago. The plot description of this one is The Joys, Hopes, and Sorrows of a Chinese woman's life play out against the backdrop of sweeping historical events from the past, present, and future. And it has the Alice and Wilmore seal of approval, it sounds like. Absolutely. Here's one thing I will ask. Please. I'm a little worried. It's an, I'm watching it on Netflix. It's very easy to be distracted. Will I be fully engrossed? I think so. I mean, it is basically a, a drama about... It's not too slow. These three... No, it's a drama about these different three different characters over okay. three points in their life. It has a great Pet Shop, Pet Shop Boys track that's used. Say no more. Yes. Say no more. Okay, great. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move it back up, even though it just got bumped down a couple, so I'm going to move it back up, get it closer to the top. That is Mountains May Depart. 
That is my my list pick this time. Uh, we've got three films. We did all TV last time. We've got three films this time. We've got some recent ones, but we've also got a, a I would say, a classic catalog title that would be very interesting to discuss as well. Allison, you have the first option for our listeners' choice review on our next episode. What is it? It is a film that I mentioned earlier. Yes. It is the it is thirteenth, not keep, the thirteenth. I keep wanting to put the thirteenth. It's thirteenth. It's named for the thirteenth amendment. I don't uh, know why they got rid of the the. It I should it should be the thirteenth. I'm not, yeah. with, I haven't seen it, but it just it's hard to say thirteenth. I know, but so thirteenth on Netflix, as I mentioned before, is Ava DuVernay's documentary. Uh, the sweeping kind of almost essay of a film that goes from slavery through the civil rights movement through kind of the uh, the kind of politicization of uh, against crime and crime being this term used often to describe uh, people in the civil rights movement and people who, uh, you know, activists, cause of unrest, up to leading to the U.S. having the highest rate of, uh, you know, incarceration in the world. So, as I've said, it is about the most kind of timely uh, approach to so many topics that dominate uh, the cultural conversation right now. And I think uh, it was an interesting film to talk about in terms of the constant kind of push and pull of form versus subject matter in documentary. Hmm. Uh, you haven't seen this. Yet. I have not seen it. It is also on my mind. It is number three now. It mm. was number one until I added yes. those other two things. Uh, it is it is uh, number three on my my list. So it's it's one I will I that, that one will be watched. Whether it wins or not, I don't know exactly when, but I am looking forward to watching it right. for sure. So that one is on Netflix. Right. Our next option option is on Amazon. It's a recent addition to Amazon Prime. It is the film Misery, directed by Rob Reiner. And I'll read you the plot description, if you're unfamiliar with it. After a famous author is rescued from a car crash by a fan of his novels, he comes to realize that the care he is receiving is only the beginning of a nightmare of captivity and abuse. And it stars James Kahn as the author and Kathy Bates as Annie Wilkes, who is the, the fan who discovers him and nurses him back to health, question mark, perhaps, maybe not. And the reason I thought this would be one that's worth talking about, I saw it a few years ago. It's probably Now it's like five years ago, but I wrote about it back then and I wrote um, in an article about other stuff. But I said, in 2011... Annie Wilkes, the Kathy Bates character, looks like a prescient figure, the prototype for the ultimate internet fanboy. George Lucas better hope his car never breaks down on a snowy mountain road. And so that's why I thought Allison has seen it, but not in a very long time. It's been a long time. So I thought that would be that she really, this character really does seem to be at the crux of a lot of ideas about fans and authors and the audience and, and the relationship and the ownership of, of pop culture. Yeah. Yes. I mean, certainly the way that some fans talk about uh, George R.R. R. Martin and to George R.R. R. Martin. Yes. In terms of how being, he like, owes them. Right. To being like, why don't, every time he's shown doing something else, they're like, why are you wasting your time? Right. And, and you should be writing, finishing writing your book. Right. You're going to die soon. And I don't know if I've mentioned <laughs> it. It's of course based on a novel by Stephen King. So you have an author sort of interrogating his own fandom here and thinking about ideas about fandom. Uh, the James Conn character, the author is, is a writer of these novels about a character named misery. So that's where you get the sort of the, the game of Thrones thing. It's misery like, it's an on, and- right. It's an ongoing project of these books. So she is very invested in this character's life. So yeah, it's a, it's actually a really good movie. I, I, I'd have to look at the full list, but it might be my favorite Rob Reiner movie. Well, Spinal Tap. Okay. It might be my second favorite Rob Reiner movie. Well, When Harry Met Sally. Uh, yeah, well, The Princess Bride. Yeah. Rob Reiner, good director. Not uh, maybe, recently. 
though. Not okay, not recently, but he, yeah, he had a very good run. So anyway, it's a, it's a it's a good it's a really good movie. It's worth talking about. I think we'd have a lot to discuss. I'm not sure what we would pair with it, even if we wanted to do the theme of fandom. But it seems like there's got to be other I'm stuff. I'm sure there are other things. There's yes. got to be other stuff we could talk about. So that's option number two, Misery, which is available now on Amazon Prime. The third pick is streaming on Netflix. It is Deepan, the 2015 film from Jacques Odiard, who did A Prophet and Rust and Bone, uh, the beat that my heart skipped, uh, and won the Palme d'Or at Cannes last year. It was a bit of a surprise, but I think got a lot of acclaim. It's a film about three Tamil refugees, uh, a man, a woman, and a child, who managed to get out of Sri Lanka as is being like torn apart by the civil war by pretending to be a family. They pretend to be a couple and their child, these three strangers. And they get brought to the suburbs of France and the suburb is not uh, the housing projects basically of France and kind of have to struggle to fit in understand life when none of them speaks french to like work uh to deal with the fact that these projects are crime ridden themselves and not necessarily safe and to figure out what their relationship is they are total strangers uh very intriguing movie i think there's a lot to talk about in it um, you saw it at Cannes. i saw it at Cannes. i haven't seen it since I i'm guessing since. i haven't seen it yes but you know it was a big fan of a profit and big fan of profit. Yep. I think Jacques Odiard uh, is a good filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, so three very strong options. This very time. strong. I yeah. don't know what's going to win no and idea. would be totally happy with any of these options. Yes. So which of these options should we pick? Uh, you can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. Or you can always vote by entering in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, October 17th at noon. That is when we call it. And after that, we will announce the winner on Twitter, uh, at our Twitter account, which is filmspottingsvu. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash filmspottingsvu. And then you'll have all that week to watch the film. And then you will be able to join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will come out on Tuesday, October 25th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies and TV shows we discuss on the show. The Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We will be back in two weeks. We will have more recommendations of the movie and televisual varieties, and we will also have the movie review you pick. But in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore, at Matt Singer, and of course, follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we, and mostly Allison, share more streaming suggestions from Allison and also SVU listeners. Uh, for Filmspotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.